0: Welcome to Oxford, and welcome to OSEF. My name is Libby Wood, I'm from the Entrepreneurship Center team here at the Business School. We have a full day ahead, uh, keynote talks, panel discussions, leading up to a final pitch event this afternoon. In between, you will also have opportunities to network. Before I hand over to Dean Tufano, allow me to share some general housekeeping and useful information to make the most of your day. To begin with, in the event of a fire alarm, please make your way to the nearest fire exits, which are located out of the doors here and also behind me here, following a member of staff. First aid is located in reception um, on the left-hand side at the desk. Please be careful when walking outside. It is unusual weather conditions, as we all know, so please take care, especially when you're walking over to the Oxford Foundry. We're very excited this year to incorporate swap card into our... OSEF event. This is a great way for you to have everything you need and make the most of your day. Please make sure you download it. It takes two minutes to set up your profile. You will give you an all access pass to the full agenda, individual sessions, and also allow you to network with attendees and speakers. On your lanyard, you have a QR code. This allows you to scan, receive the details of everybody else who's here. Um, And it means you can also network outside of the sessions, not just in the networking breaks that we have. If you don't have a QR code, please don't worry. This may be because you haven't given us an email address when you registered or you've only just recently registered for OSEF. You can still download the app and use the hashtag OSEF2018 as your code couple of points about the programme. With the breakout sessions, the panel discussions that you have this morning and this afternoon, they're on a first come, first serve basis. So if you have something in mind, make sure you get there early. Um, sessions are signposted throughout the school and events team are dressed in black and white to support you and direct you as needed. We're excited as also to have innovation for small businesses supporting us on this event as well as, as, well as UK Business Angels Association supporting the pitch event. With that, we very much hope you enjoy the day, and I'll now hand over to the Dean of the Business School, Peter Tufano, to give the official welcome.
1: Good morning. Good morning! morning! Much better. So, you have to start out with some energy for an entrepreneurship event. Why entrepreneurship? Why would a school focus so much on entrepreneurship? We have a long horizon. As Oxford, we think about time periods not in terms of weeks or months or years, but decades and centuries. So, over the next century, where is it that human progress will come from? Where will prosperity be born? Um, And if we think about that, it's gonna come from new products, new services, new organizations, new ways of working. Now that can come from incumbents, and more often than not that will come in entrepreneurial activities by new firms, by scale-ups, by entrepreneurship, and therefore if we're gonna take the long view, then we have to be committed to entrepreneurship. So that's kind of the macro way of thinking about it, and that entrepreneurship might improve the way that we eat and the way that we take care of ourselves. It might change the way that we transfer money from country to country, the way that we protect ourselves against natural disasters and, and food insecurity. It might change the way that we communicate with one another via social media and you're gonna hear speakers on all those topics and more over the course of the day. So on a macro level that's why entrepreneurship is so important but at a micro level why at a business school, why at a university is, my, is entrepreneurship so important? Entrepreneurship I think distills the essence of business. Now for my MBAs here, how many of you are MBAs? A few, good. So don't take this the wrong way. The frameworks that you've learned, all of the models that you've learned are important. They really are, right? But what is the, the essence of what business is all about? One thing is this triangle between you and your customer and your product. You have to understand your product really well, you have to understand your customer really well, you have to make sure that your customer and your product actually work together. As an entrepreneur, if you screw that up, It's not going to happen. It forces you to focus on that. Secondly, despite all the models you may build, you're going to have to make a lot of decisions under uncertainty without the information that you need. Entrepreneurship is great about teaching people uh, or giving people the experiences about how to deal with uncertainty, how to make decisions with the best information you've got to move forward, to to kind of fail when failing is the next step step back and figure out where to go from there. That's really hard to learn in the classroom. Entrepreneur organizations, if you think about it, there's individuals, teams, big organizations, governments, societies. Entrepreneurship tends to operate in the team level, especially the kinds of things that students do. Working in teams, understanding how to motivate a team, how to bring a team back from crisis, uh, trying to make sure that everybody's on the same page, an important lesson that you can learn. And I think you can learn it especially well when you're working Uh, on a project. So there are lots of things that I think that you need to know in order to be successful businesswomen and businessmen and or to be successful in whatever career and entrepreneurship distills many of those lessons down. So at a macro level entrepreneurship is critical to the performance of our society at a micro level it's critical to your education and so that's why OSEF is so important in the course of of this year. Um, Why is that? Well you know, as much as we can lecture and give frameworks, what it's important for you to hear is from people who actually are in the process, have been in the process of succeeding and failing and succeeding again in creating ventures. Um, And you'll find out that there's tremendous success stories, but they're also going to describe the frustrations that they've had. They're going to describe that luck is important, but they're also going to have to describe how they had to make their own luck. And how they've actually had to be committed to make sure that things happen, because it doesn't just happen by accident. And in terms of commitment, today's a big commitment uh, by our speaker, our first speaker this morning. So not too many speakers do two speeches in one day, right? But our speaker this morning, uh, David Buttress, actually is giving our keynote this morning and then this afternoon the wedding speech for his brother. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. Um, So we're particularly pleased that David's here. David started at Coca-Cola, and then he went on to be CEO of Just Eat, and now he's a partner at 83 North, which is an investment firm, and he'll describe more about that. Uh, He's been acknowledged as one of the top entrepreneurs in this country. We're thrilled that he's here, and in addition, good luck to your brother this afternoon. (laughs) Anyway, David Buttress.
2: Um, I'll try and keep the, I won't mix the jokes up I'm about today's best man speech and this morning's speech. Um, and if you knew, mom, knew my mum, you'd understand why I was here. She's uh, she's pretty nervous this morning. It's my baby brother's wedding, so you can imagine what a what a mum is like on the on the, the youngest son's uh, wedding morning. So she's pretty nervous with all the snow. But over the next 20 25 minutes, I'd like to talk you through, if I can, three things. Just very quickly introduce Justine, because I'm conscious not everyone will know uh, the business. But then quickly move into, I guess, three key learnings for me, which is, one, about how um, we built the company and how we thought about building the company and what drove that. Secondly, how we've used data. Lots of companies talk talk about data and why it's powerful and useful. I'd like to give you some tangible examples of how a tech company can use data. Maybe there's some uh, cross value there. And then lastly, talk about, I think, what the X factor was about building a successful company versus not uh, building a successful company. So... Let's get into it. So in terms of of what drove our company and where Just Eat started, Just Eat's often referred to as a startup. It's actually 13 years old. It started in 2005 here in the UK. Um, The top left picture you see there is me on day one. Um, You can see I had a lot of hair then. Um, You also notice I had a suit on uh, because I came from Coca-Cola, very much a corporate background. Um, And when you work in the restaurant industry, you you learn quickly to lose the suit. Um, I actually walked into the first restaurants and I signed the first about 300 restaurants on Just Eat Here in the UK. That's the first one there, of Pizza. And I walked in in a suit on day one, he threw me out. He actually thought I was the Inland Revenue. Um, um, so on day two, I turned up in a jeans and a polo shirt, and, and it, things started to happen. So um, that was quite a good uh, revelation on day one, that's for sure. And the pitch you see the bottom left is the morning that we IPO'd in 2014, in April 2014. We took the company public. You're on the london stock exchange the biggest ipo for a decade um a 1.4 billion pounds uh, ipo and that's the picture you see as a ceo when you sort of push the button at the lse and the interesting thing is they tell you do push the button otherwise the market doesn't open of course being an entrepreneur i didn't really believe that i thought that's got to be garbage so i didn't push the button and i can tell you the market does open um, so that is rubbish uh, for when you get there <laughs> And then, last thing to note is you see that picture in the bottom right corner. We started in the basement in a flat, uh, two of us, back in 2005. We had no money, we bootstrapped the business. And the reason why I reference that is not for some sort of, oh, that's a really great, sympathetic story, but actually, that was a really bad mistake by us. And one of the things I'm really pleased about the ecosystem that you all operate in now is access to capital has changed. Because as bootstrap entrepreneurs, what we actually did wrong in Just Eat, the first mistake we made, is we bootstrapped that business for far too long. We didn't raise money our Series A until 2009 via Index Ventures, um, thanks to Danny Reimer and Saul Klein and the team there for backing us, but we actually bootstrapped Just Eat for two years too long, and I still believe today if we had raised money earlier, we would have even been further along than where we are now. Um, it, it gave some good quality on DNA and value of money, um, but it's not a straight line either, so we actually ran out of cash twice along the way. We nearly stopped actually in the autumn of 2006. So it just goes to show a little bit Peter alluded to there is really important I think great entrepreneurs have a bloody mindedness about them. We almost had an irrational conviction that we would get there and when you run out of money the easiest thing to do in a way is to stop um, but we carried on and I'm glad we did. So let's get into I guess the substance of it all now you know a little bit more about Just Eat I guess and my journey. Well the first thing I think I can tell you Just Eat always was is we were very much a mission driven company. And what does that mean when you're a mission-driven company? I think what it meant to me as an entrepreneur was it was about a long-term destination, not about the next 12 months of KPIs. We weren't just about what the numbers look like in a year, but we wanted to build a company that meant something to the industry and the customers that we operated in. And I think when you have that sense of purpose and mission, it really does galvanize a team. And I'll talk to that a bit later about what that meant. But it also means as an entrepreneur, you've got to live and breathe that. You can't say you're mission-driven and then be deviating all the time about what you're about. Because when you're mission-driven, it also means what you're not going to do. So what we decided our mission was, was this. And this hasn't, didn't change actually for a decade, which is to empower consumers to love... I mean, empower is an awful word actually, um, but you know every company uses it. But I think the word I pick out to you there is love. To love their takeaway experience, because it's kind of easy to say love around delivery food now because we have just eat you have uber Eats, you have Deliveroo, you have so many options around food delivery now which enables you to have a really nice experience around food delivery you can pretty much get in 2018 whatever you want and you'll get it within 30 to 40 minutes and actually if it goes wrong a professional company will do something about it for you well if you go back 12 years to when we defined this mission if something went wrong you'd have to telephone a restaurant it was hit or miss who you spoke to whether you get any kind of retribution or correction. And in terms of what you could get, you could pretty much get a pizza delivered and you could probably get Indian, and that was about it in reality. So if you go back to creating love in an industry that was fragmented, had very poor customer experience, had poor choice, love was a lofty aspiration as as two entrepreneurs sat in a basement with no money. But I think having that sense of creating love in the industry that didn't previously have any love in it was kind of something that really galvanised us and said, what does that mean for restaurants to create love in this industry? It means we need to give them world-class tech. It needs me, they need to have the same quality of platform as if they were part of the Domino's franchise. It means if you're a customer, if your food is five minutes late, we do something about it. You're not twitching at the curtains nervously, like waiting for a taxi to turn up, which is what we all become as food delivery customers. Trust me, five minutes and you all become irrational, hungry bears literally where's my food We're like you're about to starve to death if the food doesn't arrive in 45 minutes so that sense of love and creating that sense of love was something that really drove our product thinking it drove our customer experience thinking it, it made us informed us how we talked and partnered with our restaurant partners we even called them partners they weren't really legally our partners we didn't have a stake in them but we treated them as partners in terms of language and communication so love and being mission driven And that sense of drive that we've drove into our organization, I think long term was a massive competitive differentiator for us. Just Eat was not the first mover in our industry, the third mover. In fact, uh, last minute, old Urban Bite, which is a brand you may remember, Hungry House started before us here in the UK. So we were not the first mover. I'd definitely say we are the best executor, but I would say that. I'm a bit conflicted. So... The other thing I wanted to get into is, is how the industry and food industry is evolving. I thought it might be interesting to share with you this. So what you see happening here is the online share of UK retailing. You can see on the top blue line, you see all industry, if you like. So all retail, excluding, obviously, that's excluding cars, I think, or something. But you see there that, um, that the industry and a lot of industry, hotels, flights, um, uh, consumer marketplaces... Has driven online has significantly. Nearly 20% of UK retail is now done online. It's grown very quickly, as you all know. But if you look at food and food delivery and food generally, it lags behind. It lags significantly behind. And what that tells you is there's still a ton of growth to shoot for. And if you actually look across the world, these are the markets that just eat operates here in Western Europe. You can see Denmark being the most advanced. Nearly 60%, 60% of all food orders now in Denmark happen online. The UK lags a little bit behind, but now it's 40 odd percent, roughly, give or take a little bit. And you can see it falls away uh, down to the right. So there's a ton of growth still to happen. And that's why you see in food in particular a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startups still happening. And there's a lot of growth still to shoot for. So I'm sure there's going to be multi, several multi billion pound companies that come out of the food delivery category here in Europe still. I guess we all need to eat, right? And the the interesting thing for you all is to know is this, Just Eat could see, we can see long before actually consumer trends uh, start to talk about it from a retrospective perspective, what's happening in food. And what you see here is the Daily Mail is wrong. I can tell you that, which is always a good thing to be able to say. The Daily Mail is wrong. Healthy food long term is growing much quicker, significantly quicker than historical categories. In fact, it's growing about two and a half times quicker and this has been happening over a five-year trend the green line you see there is healthier cuisines and this is UK data now bearing in mind we have around 10 million customer records in the UK of the adult population and those customers order on average 12 times a year just eat as incredibly powerful data around what consumer trends look like this is what people buy and where in what demographic and spending how much and how often so I can tell you this data is incredibly statistically robust so we are very confident that just eat that healthier people are getting healthier in terms of what they're eating. Now that doesn't mean to say we're getting healthier if we're not exercising of course. But it definitely means what we're eating is definitely healthier. And, can, and you can see growing two and a bit times quicker than historical foods. So we, I can definitely tell you for sure UK customers, our UK consumers are getting more healthier. They're more educated about what is healthier and they're choosing healthier more often. So if we can couple that, I guess, to a great exercise regime, we, long term, you can see what that'll mean for the health trends here in the UK. But what's also maybe a fun thing to look at is what the fastest growing cuisines are. Now you can see by market it changes. It changes by market. I don't know if you can see that clearly, but maybe I'll pick one out for you. I, quite, I always kind of find it fun that in, in Spain, the fifth, uh, the fifth most popular cuisine is Spanish. <laughs> you can see they're truly becoming a global, global market. Sushi is actually the number one food choice now in Spain and growing the quickest. Uh, here in the UK, steak actually is the fastest growing food delivery um, choice. No surprise there because, of course, guess what's happened? You can now get access to sort of middle tier to top tier um, steak delivery restaurants, which you couldn't five, ten years ago. And People like that. And then, interestingly, secondly, maybe going against the health thing a little bit, desserts. Desserts. We all like our chocolate cake still. So, um, desserts are actually also a fact. Now, that, what that tells you is the choice that's available. You know, you can now get dessert as well delivered. Uh, there are actually specifically outlets now on Just Eat and others that actually are just del- dessert parlours and things like that that are becoming very popular. And then also you can see breakfast. Now, I think this is a really interesting one around breakfast. right? You saw Uber Eats recently partner with uh, McDonald's um, around their breakfast offering. And now what tells tells you is we as, we as people are getting lazier and lazier and lazier and lazier. You know, so food delivery used to be a treat 12 years ago. It's no longer a treat. It's just something we all do because it's more convenient than cooking. And now, now, now that's extending to breakfast. Breakfast is now single-digit percentages, but it's single-digit percentages of the overall market. Five years ago, it was zero, but it's growing very quickly. So you can see that even the choice has been proliferated. Health is growing significantly quicker than others, but also how often we use food and food delivery as a choice is also growing very quickly, which also talks to entrepreneurial opportunity, because I think breakfast offering and lunch offering still, with, in, in, uh, with the incumbents, including just eat, is lousy. So I think if some you know great entrepreneur can think of an innovative way to help me get a great healthy breakfast delivered or lunch delivered, I think you could build quite an interesting business there, and it's a big market, multi billion pounds. Anyway, so that's that. And then, in terms about how Just Eat understands change, the tech company. Well, let me talk you through now and give you a, a case study of what data. You know, lots of companies, I said, like I said, talk about data and using data, and we got tons of data, and we're going to monetize data. And I look at them and I just say one thing: how? how are you going to do that what does it mean what does it mean for your organization is it and, and if i walk into your organization does it feel like an organization that's using data every day you know the meetings start with with a data pack do they refer back to the data um, do everyone from product through to customer care in your operation use data in order to inform choices and and a b testing because if it doesn't it's just lip service but let me talk to you about what, how we use data so we have, um, we have over 70,000 restaurants globally on our platform. So we see trends locally, we see trends at a macro level. And that's kind of interesting as a business, I can tell you, because I can see, or we can see data literally at the street level, at a postcode level, and we can go all the way up then to country level, or we can even go by continent. Um, so let me talk to you about how we do that at a community level, at a personalization level. So the first thing we do using AI is to map all our customer base, so we can group all our customers into sophisticated demographics so we know who you are. And why is that interesting? I can tell you, for example, if you order a Thai on a Tuesday at seven o'clock, you have a more than a 90% probability that you will order Thai on a Tuesday at seven o'clock the following week. Well, now, you don't know. I know. Like, I know like you all think we're different, but I can easily, I, I can actually tell you that over 80% of those customers will then also the same dishes from that Thai restaurant at seven o'clock on a Tuesday the following week. So, we as a company, by doing nothing else. At 5:45 on a Tuesday, can send you a push notification with the app and say, "It's Tuesday. We think you're going to fancy tie and if you do, just push that button, we'll send it for you." And then half the customers will hit that button. <laughs> now, what's interesting around that is, so we know your cuisine preferences and your time preferences. We know from your ratings what you like and what you don't like. We also have your order history, of course, so we can see what you've chosen and how much you spend. Now what's interesting for that, if you think of a customer mapping perspective, if we know you look like a customer that looks like this, and we have a group of customers that look similar, but by adding in a, let's call it a, I don't know, a Tom Yum soup to your starter, they they had a better experience, we will then introduce to you, we think that your dinner tonight would be better for you if you also tried a Tom Yum soup, because customers that look like you like that. You hit add, we sell more, The restaurant sells more and you get a better experience. That's one very micro example of where Just Eat is innovating around and using data to be smart. And then, of course, what we then do is present the product to you on a personalized basis. There's no point us presenting to you 190 restaurant options in a postcode um, on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock when we know you probably just want to see the Thai ones. Now, this is where it gets super interesting. So this is, this is one of our cities that are on just in Montreal, and we do this for all our, our markets, but I just thought it maybe it might be fun to give you an example of how we use data to execute on a B2B sales strategy level. So the red dots are the demographics of the city of Montreal. Red dots are the, uh, the working class areas, uh, purple dots are middle class, so that you see there, on, just there, and the green ones are busy families. So if we go down into a bit more detail, so we can then drill down into suburbs and we can see, as you can see, it's quite interesting, right? And lots of The reason why I picked Montreal for you is that Montreal is pretty typical. It's not on a, demographically as a city. So you can see it's clustered around um, in terms of where those, where those class types of customers are based. Um, and that means something for us as a very local business because what that informs us of is this. So we can see at street level how the demographics in that city, the customers in that city are located. And you can see they tend to cluster or they overlap a little bit. Now, what's interesting about that is, to our sales team, is we know the green dots that I referred to have a bias to sushi. So we know, we know what we need to have around these guys is really good sushi restaurants. So our sales guys will make sure in these street areas, we've signed up the local sushi restaurants and we get the best possible offers from them um, in order to present those to the customers who live in those streets. Now, the interesting one, the purple dots here are students. Now, students actually use the product a lot. You have a, they have a, use the product a lot, but they like a broad cost reference of cuisine categories, but they have a bias to pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's true. So, 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 what we do around there, of course, is we start at the local best pizza restaurants that are student offerings, but we make sure, of course, they have great value offers, because we know that students like that, and we know that students don't necessarily want to order on a Saturday and a weekend, which means we can say to the restaurants, Listen, we've got a lot of customers like using Monday through Thursday. If you give us a great offer, we'll present it to them. They will use you. You might acquire a new customer, etc., et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, you can see how close these streets are. They, I mean, from, from literally the boulevard there to maybe that green dot is like a five minute walk. But You can see how by using data, we as an organization can do two things. One, we can present you with a really good product experience that is unique and, bes- and feels bespoke to you, which creates loyalty from you as a customer to us as a brand. And second of all, for our restaurant partners, we can introduce you to a very relevant demographic and enable them and educate them to present you with an offering that's relevant to you as a customer. So for them, they can give you an experience that's far closer to love, if you go back to our mission, to drive love in our category, than would have been able to do historically. And we do that at a global level. So this is very powerful. It actually helped grow our business. We... When we introduced this data two years ago, we actually accelerated the growth of our company year on year, which is quite difficult to do when you're obviously you know, growing very quickly. We actually accelerated growth year on year as a result of using this data. So what, you know, what does this mean for us this year? Just uh, sorry, last year We're a public company now need to be careful. Um, so as we actually uh, this year in the last 12 months just Eat generated just over 500 million pounds of net revenues. So a half a billion pound company now in terms of annual turnover. We just entered the FTSE 100 uh, in the Q4 of 2017. There's actually in the last 12 months, 30 million new active customers. And we think we'll be the first public company in the UK. That's a technology based startup, which will turn over a billion pounds. And we think we'll do that by 2020. Um, But let's see, maybe it'll be a year later if we don't do such a great job. Mm -hmm. And then I thought it might be fun to talk to you about our first customer. This is a, this is absolutely a fact. So this is our first ever customer in the UK. I love Kevin. If I could reach, I would kiss him. Um, he's our first customer ever tried Just Eat back in May 2006. Um, so Kevin, Kevin actually still uses Just Eat. I'm pleased to tell you, which tells you something about the lifetime value of a cohort. Um, and you can see how him, how valuable he is. You know, he's a very valuable. He spent a lot of money with Just Eat over the last te- decade or so. Um, but why going back to why data helps to drive performance. Here's another user case study at a, at a personal customer level. So Kevin was kind of Mr. Average. I'm sure there's nothing average about Kevin, but, but in terms of Just Eat, he was an average customer. And what that means for us is he used us 12 times per annum. And you could see this was his order frequency through a year. And you could see some of the instances he has. So, for example, he left his first review in the summer um, there, just between June and September. He actually had a problem with a restaurant. He had an order rejected um, in October, Um, And he was called by our customer operation to apologize and suggested a different restaurant and then he he didn't order so there's a risk we would have lost him but then Kevin saw a voucher 15 pounds off his next takeaway on the evening standard which he then used which got him back into the rhythm of order on our product and then he saw the TV ad and downloaded our app. So he was average up until this point ordering 12 times per annum and he'd done that over a period of about eight years so there was nothing changing this was kind of an order frequency from 2013 what's interesting is what happened to kevin in the spring of 2014 he saw the tv advert and downloaded the app and then this happened he then ordered 30 times and that's the value of app versus web if you're an e-commerce company so just by getting kevin to do nothing else by doing do nothing else than moving from web to app he more than doubled his frequency now bear in mind in the in the eight years previous he'd done nothing else he hadn't changed at all 12 times per year he clearly had a habit Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, Tie. You get the picture, right? We're all the same. Kevin had his habit, and that was his habit. But, but actually getting him to download an app, he changed his habit. And that's why companies, and why tech companies often start with app only. They don't really want you on web. I could tell you now, if we could switch every customer from web to app, we'd do it like that. In fact, if we probably started Just Eat Today, we wouldn't even build you a website. We'd just build an app and make you download that. And I think that's why you see all e-commerce companies globally now pushing their app products more and more. And then what does the future of food look like i thought it might be fun to share that with you just for a couple of minutes from our perspective given the amount of consumer records we have now here in the uk so if you go back to 2010 healthy restaurants in the uk so there was a cluster in london about 25 and then there was one or two in manchester but pretty much nothing pretty much not a lot right there's a healthy restaurant in the uk in 2010 If you go to 2017 you can see the southeast of Britain now I mean you can get everything I mean anyone who's in any major city including you here in Oxford salad bars are a great example over the last two three years you've seen a really massive growth in terms of restaurant entrepreneurs starting salad offerings exclusively only salad bar offerings and you can see this now rolling across all of the UK even Glasgow for example the home of the deep-fried Mars bar now has healthy Mars uh, healthy Mars bars (laughs) healthy restaurants so um, so you're going back to the health point now this is important of course because what you can then do as a company as a tech company is you can share this with restaurant entrepreneurs so we work with you know some of the major um, private equity owned but also entrepreneurial run major restaurant brands here in the uk and globally and we can share this with them so we can tell them you know where where are the best locations where are the gaps where are the gaps i can tell you for example in oxford oxford actually has a shortage of a high quality pizza offering still you have some, but you have insufficient relative to the demographic you have in this, in this area. So if I was opening a restaurant right now in Oxford, I would open a high-end pizza offer, and I guarantee you it'd probably be one of the most successful restaurants here in Oxford. So we can share that data, and maybe we can even monetize that data. Just eat doesn't do that today. We share it as a, you know, a good thing to do for our restaurant partners. But that just goes to show I think why tech companies and tech entrepreneurs can be really, really good for society. Not only can we help to build and stimulate the economy, but we can also educate other entrepreneurs in order to be better and smarter and increase their probably being successful, because we can share this kind of data with them. And at the consumer level, we can promote, hopefully, things that are better for lifestyle, better for choice, um, and encourage and try and topspin that growth in things like health. So I think the future from a food perspective looks, I think, pretty optimistic. Um, now, there's demographics within that where we need to talk about as well and address because there's some areas you can see that are lagging. Um, you can see the northeast of England, for example, lags in terms of this. So, I think there's something around education there or, uh, that needs to be addressed. So, we've talked about this again. I think this will accelerate over time. I think I see this graph accelerating uh, as children get more educated in school, for example, around healthier and healthier food choices. And smart companies better get on the bus quickly. Because your brand and your product offering will quickly become and look like it's uh, unattractive um, uh, and a bit of a luddite if you don't. I think it actually—it's an opportunity, but it's also a threat. You know, so the likes of Just Eat and Uber Eats, um, Delivery Hero, Hungry House, Delivery—all of all the—you better you better be on this. Otherwise, the next entrepreneur is going to come and eat your lunch if they execute better and smarter and get ahead of the curve. And then I'd like to talk to you about, lastly, about a thing that I believe is just a general point around uh, as an entrepreneur and building a company and how you do it from a, you know, what's the real X factor differentiator? Because data is useful for sure. You know, having a clear strategy and mission was definitely powerful for sure. Having quality VC backed funding and cap access to capital was really, really helpful. But if I could say to you one thing, one thing that I learned over the 12 years of starting and building and then taking Just Eat public was this would be this point. Culture matters more than anything. And as an entrepreneur, you have two great opportunities. First of all, you're starting something. You can build your own culture. One of the exciting things that we all believe about Just Eat was we didn't want to be doing it like we come from before. I come from a corporate background at Coca-Cola. My partner worked at the Danish embassy. So we, didn't want, we thought, wow, we can just our company culture be whatever we want it to be. We created a very flat culture at Just Eat. We kept it the same. We were very inclusive. We shared data widely and openly. We trusted our colleagues. We created um, a really passionate, uh, I think, exciting place to work that was very different to be. And the thing I think the most important thing we did do is we did not change. And let me talk about how and why we didn't change. I think the reason why Jeff Bezos wrote that great book around, you know, why is a culture, each strategy, whatever, I think Bezos is telling, I think, the world something very powerful there, and I would definitely echo it, which is if you create a group of powerful, energetic people with a clear sense of mission and purpose, with a clear sense of what they want to build, nothing will stop that happening. Nothing, nothing. If you, if, as long as you're authentic, you stay true to it and you don't dilute it. So we were actually militant about our culture at Just Eat, not in a weird, scary way, um, but in a way that we actually felt it was probably the most important thing we got right as leaders every year was making sure we stay true to our culture. We measured it. We measured our culture. You can measure it. So we used to measure it internally, and we tested for it. And when we interviewed people, it was the single biggest factor. We used to reject people on culture. We would reject people, smart people that could definitely do the job they were competent for, but if we didn't think they were a good cultural fit, they wouldn't join our company. We were that. We felt that strongly about it. And the way we did it was to establish rituals at Just Eat. So you can see here, this is the first. We called it the World Party back in 2008. And, and this is just one example of how we established our culture. So every year, once a year, we got every Just Eat colleague in a room for two days. First day was professional agenda. Second day was we just spent time together um, having fun. And, and, and what we did was we flew everyone from all around the world. Now, when you go public, and this party cost about a million pounds last year to fly everyone in from all different continents of the, of the world to operate on, That's a big commitment as a public company, and I think it really tests management's commitment to their culture. You can see the first one here in 2008 had rather more humble beginnings. Um, (laughs) This one here is in Centre Parks, um, for those of you who go to Centre Parks in in East Anglia in 2011, and you can see how it grew. This is the year after we went public in the 2015, the top left corner, that was in Windsor. And then the bottom last one in 2017 there, that was over 2,000 people, and that's the dance tent at glastonbury for those at glastonbury for those of you who recognize it we actually had to hire it it's the, it's the biggest indoor tent you can get in the uk it was two and, <laughs> and a half thousand people and we and we had to use that in our last conference so um so that's and that tells you something i think about about why it matters and why it matters is there's lots of companies where people can go and choose to work there's lots of competitors they can choose to go and work at but if you can create an environment that is really unique and it feels special and authentic the level of engagement you can get from employees I often used to talk about it is just Eat was built by a thousand founders if you can create an environment of a thousand founders in your organization as you grow your businesses trust me you will succeed and whatever that success looks like you will succeed and if you go back to just eats um, and go and talk to ex employees and as you go and look on LinkedIn they all talk and act and behave like and have the characteristics of founders and i think that's what why culture matters and if you read bezos's book he talks about creating a founder mentality and it kind i think it doesn't the book doesn't quite pull that out enough for me but where i would articulate it to you is if you walk in a room of an organization and the people in holding that meeting in that room are acting and behaving like founders what you'll see is three characteristics one they'll be incredibly committed the second thing they'll be is they'll be very customer and product-centered uh, driven people And the third thing they'll be is very long-sighted in their decision-making. They don't think about themselves and their career. They think about what it looks like for the organisation and for the market they operate in. And if you can get those three things flowing through decision-making in an organisation, it becomes a very powerful tool for growth. It becomes a very powerful tool uh, for loyalty. And it becomes a very powerful tool uh, for driving success. So I think that's why culture is the differentiator. And I would really, as an entrepreneur, encourage you all... To never change it if you really believe that you've got onto something in terms of defining your culture and your organization don't let it go because actually what happens is as you grow there's lots of pressure to change financial pressure board pressure corporate pressures to become more I guess sort of you know um, as you become a FTSE 100 there's a lot of pressure to be you know, a compliant organization we used to have a healthy disrespect for that kind of nonsense and just say, I don't care about you know, as a public company, if we're not allowed to share this data, because that potentially makes people's insiders. Well, OK, so what? Let them be insiders. We would rather share information widely so people know what make the decisions in our organisation. So having that, I guess, militancy of approach helps to drive um, that culture. So that's it for me this morning. Um, thank you for listening. I hope it's been a useful uh, keynote for you. And I've got a small opportunity now for some questions before I go and get my suit on.